Hey, this is John, and you're listening to the Mosaic Young Adult Podcast. To learn more about Mosaic Young Adults, visit us online at thisismosaic.org forward slash young adults. We hope this podcast is simply part of a greater conversation you have with Jesus. Enjoy the message. Wow. Well, at least I'm doing good. Uh, how's everybody doing? Come on, dude. Sorry, I'm, I'm out of student ministry, so we gotta have like a little more like, you know, up, up, okay? If you don't know me, my name's Jason Ruiz. I'm actually on staff here uh, with student ministry, and I'm the male discipleship coordinator with the student ministry, which just basically means I disciple the guys who disciple our guy students. So, um, wow, so... I just want to be straight with you for a second. I, I have been preaching now for about, uh, somebody actually just asked me my testimony last night and I was telling them and I said, yeah. And then like, I went with my wife to a church. I was 23 years old. I, I was baptized uh, two weeks after we started going to this church and uh, I preached my first sermon six months after I became a believer. And, uh, and that was 26 years ago. And, um, if I'm just being straight, I still feel sick every time I step on this stage. Um, because I just think that there's a weight to what we say. And I'll be honest, I've been pacing back there while we've been worshiping because I'm just like, I've got this image in my mind from Isaiah uh, that Caesar read four weeks ago. And that if you've been at any of the house churches, like it, it came up in the first few chapters and it's just like this scene of like, the Isaiah comes before God and he's just this holy God. And it's like, there's part of me that I, I know why I can stand on this stage with full confidence, but yet there's a part of me that I'm just like, I don't want to dishonor that God. Like, I don't want to say something that brings any dishonor to him. And so... Uh, so I come here working out my own faith and fear and trembling wanting to just speak to you and uh, there's something I say to students a lot of times and uh, I'm just going to ask it of you I don't say it all the time I don't say it every time I get up to preach uh, I get to preach quite a bit on Wednesday nights and I, it's fun. I love preaching. For everything I just said about feeling sick every time we get on the stage, like I love preaching. <laughs> and so, uh, but I say this sometimes to students. I say, listen, this is all, let's make a deal tonight, okay? And uh, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna preach like this is the last time I'm ever gonna preach to you. And I want you to listen like this is the last time you'll ever hear the word of God preached. And then we'll just let God do what he's gonna do. And so let's focus in and, and hear the word of God. I, I'm really interested in the song we just sang, the song Lean Back. Um, and as we're singing it, uh, and even like I knew we were gonna sing it and I was just thinking about well, like, why do we sing songs? Why do we sing songs like this? Why do we sing songs like, uh, I'm gonna lean back in the loving arms of a beautiful father? Like, like that's kind of audacious <laughs> to sing something like that. 
I mean, some would say it's even ludicrous to sing a song like that. Like, I'm, oh, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna lean back in the loving arms of such a beautiful father. And like, oh man, we just come before God, like, oh, Jesus is my homeboy. And I'm just gonna like, oh, I'm gonna sip my latte or my caramel macchiato and I'm gonna raise one hand. And like, I might even cry. And I'm gonna sing of like leaning back in the loving arms of a beautiful father. And like, oh, I just love being in his arms. And like, oh, I just wanna curl up in daddy God's arms and like just be loved by him. And like, I just wanna curl up in his arms with a blanket and read a book. I mean, it doesn't even have to be a Bible. It could just be any book. It could just be Twilight series or something. I don't even know. Like, I just want to, I just want to curl up in daddy God's arms and just be with him. And like, yeah, I just, oh my gosh, it's just, oh, I just want to. And, and I'm just like, wow. And like, you know, you can imagine the scene, you know, you're at home and you're just like, oh yeah, I just want to lean back in his arms. And like, you've got your like Christian lo-fi worship playlist going and, and you know, you, we don't have to lie to each other. We all got it, right? I've got, yeah, yeah. We all got that lo-fi. Lo-fi is the thing nowadays. Everything's lo-fi. Okay. Yeah, you know, in the 50s, 1950s, it was everything was hi-fi. And now we've come all the way to 2023 and we're like, no lo-fi. Low, we, Cause we're all chill. We listen to all songs in minor chords and like, you know, and like we're, we're all like emo really on the inside. And it's like, but we've got a loving daddy God who will hug us. So it's okay that we're emo because he'll just take care of us in our emo self. And like, and, and, that's, and that's great, you know, like, but, but like, why do we sing that? Like we, and, and I mean, what I call the, this is like the Oreo and Diet Coke faith, okay? This is what this is. This is the Oreo Diet Coke faith. Because what that is, is just like, you know, as long as we just like feel good about it, you know, we'll eat a whole pack of Oreos, but drink a Diet Coke, like the Diet Coke's doing anything. You know, come on, we don't have to lie to each other. We do that, right? And, and like, that's the faith. It's like, well, I can do whatever I want. I can watch whatever I want. I can read whatever I want. I can like look at God however I want. But as long as I got like my cool Christian lo-fi, Christian worship playlist going in the background, then I'm spending time with Jesus and like my life's okay. And it's like, we approach God this way. And we talk about leaning back in his loving arms of a holy, holy, holy God. The God who dwells in unapproachable light. The God who is the alpha and the omega, the ancient of days. The God who is an all-consuming fire. And we talk about him like he's our homeboy. I just wanted to just read a few verses to see how God, when God shows up, how people react. So I'm just gonna jump all over. Second Chronicles 7.3. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped. Judges 13, and when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Then Manoah and his wife were watching and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife than Manoah knew that he was with the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die for we have seen God. 
Isaiah 6, 5 says, and I said, woe is me for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah saw God and came undone. That woe is me is literally like a Hebrew of like, he literally started losing his mental faculties. Revelation 1 says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. When people see this holy God, this God that we so easily sing about leaning back into his arms, when people see him in the Bible, there is fear, there is awe, there is praise, there's humility, there's worship. People are beside themselves when they come in contact with this holy God. Then Caesar stands up here four weeks ago and we read a book for the past three weeks that consistently talks about our inability as unclean people to come before this holy God. Like, if you're unclean, if you're in your sin, you can't come before this holy God. Like if you approach this God like he's your homeboy and you're just gonna dab him up, you die. The God who exists in the midst of a bush and a flame that burns but does not burn up, the God who sits upon his throne surrounded by seraphim who have six wings, one to cover their feet, one to fly and one to cover their eyes because they can't even look upon this God that dwells in unapproachable light and he does whatever he pleases on heaven and earth. The God who is pronounced holy, holy, holy for all eternity. And why do I believe he's pronounced holy, holy, holy for all eternity? Because we have a scene in Revelation where John actually sees the same God and it's the same scene that Isaiah sees. He says that he saw the four living creatures with wings and they're flopping and they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. There's 800 years between Isaiah and John and they both see the same scene. They both see the same scene of the seraphim who are covering their eyes, unable to even look at this God because he's holy, holy, holy. And they cry out day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And it's this God, we just wanna crawl up in his lap and lean back in his arms. Sin does nothing but separate us from this God. R.C. Sproul used to say, our sin is like cosmic treason to this king that we dare to call father. Our sin is scandalous to the holy, set apart God who sits on his throne. And we sing of leaning back into his arms. What kind of fools are we to think that we, 
sinful people could lean back in the arms of this God. If we don't understand how serious our sin is, God actually made a system to help us to understand. God made the betrayal of our sin painfully, disgustingly, and horrendously understood when he created the sacrificial system and called Moses up on the mount and gave him the outline for the tabernacle and later on the temple was built where sacrifices were made. It has been said that at any one annual Passover between 15 and 20,000 animals would be sacrificed at the temple in Jerusalem. The tabernacle was built just as God wanted it built and it was a place where God's presence would dwell with his people. We got a picture of the tabernacle. Um, Let's flip to the other one. There you go. So God actually had Moses build this specifically. And so people would enter uh, from the east and they would sacrifice the animals here. And there was a wash basin for the priest and they would enter in to the holy place where priests would do their work. And then there was a second veil that separated where the priest did work. Uh, They would actually go into the holy of holies one time a year, the high priest would go into there, but there was a veil that separated the holy of holies from the holy place. And later on, they actually built a temple, okay? And uh, that other picture is a, a picture of the temple, if we can go there. This was the Temple Mount in Jesus' day. Um, and it's the temple, it's the same scene. People would enter in from the east, but it was just bigger and, and grander and more, more glorious. But they would enter in and they would go into this building and that was the holy place where the priest would serve the Lord. And then there was a veil and you couldn't go beyond the veil because the holiness of God was there and it was God's presence They were separated from him and the high priest would go in once a year. So we have one last slide, I think. Do we have that one last slide? I want to show this. This is the inside of that. And there's literally like a veil here that would separate, huge. It's it's massive. Um, I'm sure Caleb and his family could probably tell you some cool stories about things they got to see around this site if you want to catch up with them afterwards. But this was all built in a very specific way to show like, I'm God. You don't just come into my presence and you're not just okay with me. Like there has to be a sacrifice for the things you've done against me. So I'm not just somebody, you just come into my presence. Like we're on good terms. Hebrews 9, one through seven actually says, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness for a tent was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold and which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. 
Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing the ritual duties, but in the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. There's actually this old legend it's kind of a mystical legend found in the Kabbalah about how they would actually, when the high priest would go in once a year, they would tie a rope around his ankle just in case he got into the holy place, the most holy place and stood before God and had sin and would die so they could pull him out and no one had to go in for him. Now, here's the thing. We don't actually know that this is true. Um, uh, we don't find it in any of the Jewish writings, uh, the Mishnah or the Torah or anywhere. But, but it was this story that they would tell and it, was, it gave us a good picture, whether it was true or not. It made us realize how bad our sin was and how much it separated us from God. That there would be a fear that you could go before God and just die and they would have to drag you out of the Holy of Holies by your ankle. The sacrificial system was given in Leviticus to pay a debt for our sin. A system of sacrificing animals for us in our, our modern times, it literally kind of offends our sensibilities, I understand. I, I actually love the way the Bible Project talks about this. They say, for the Israelites, cutting an animal's throat and watching its blood, that is, its life, drained from its body was a visceral symbol of the devastating results of their sin and selfishness. The stakes are high. Human evil releases death out into the world. It may not seem like such a big deal to cheat your neighbor or steal a donkey. It's not like you're murdering someone, right? But multiply that wrongdoing by tens or hundreds of thousands of people who you get a violent, you get a violent and corrupt community. Sin released into the world compounds and begins a downward spiral that we've seen before in the biblical story. So the animal's symbolic death is a physical symbol of what's really at stake, the life or death of the community. You could call this part of the symbol a deterrent. However, the animal's death was not just a reminder of sin's tragic consequences. The animal's life was also offered as a symbolic substitute. If sin vandalizes God's world with death and pain, then God has every right to make people face the just consequences. So the animal's life is symbolically offered as a ransom payment that would cover them. So how do we get from this image? How do we get from this holy God that we can't be in his presence because of our sin? How do we get from that to lean back in his loving arms. Because we get there, y'all. That's the good news. But how do we get there? How do we get from your sin is so devastating that there must be a death to atone for your sins or God will pour out his wrath on you to lean back in the loving arms of a beautiful father. Hebrews 9, 11 through 14 says this, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, 
He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. God the Father sent his one and only son to die for our sins. He was born of a virgin, lived on this earth for 30 years, then began his ministry of reconciling the world to God. That ministry ended with his sacrificial death on a cross. When John the Baptist saw him, he told his disciples, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why did John call Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Because Jesus came to give his own life as a ransom. Just as the sacrificial system, lambs were killed for the sins of the people, Christ came to offer himself as an atonement. From the garden to the cross, there has always been a veil separating sinful people. In the garden, it was the cherubim. Remember, God puts Adam and Eve out east of the garden. He puts cherubim there to guard them from coming back into the tree of life and the presence of God. In the tabernacle, in the temple, it was a curtain separating the holy place from the courtyard and the holy of holies. It separated God from man. From Moses to the cross, there was a sacrifice of lambs without blemish that were given to atone for the sins of the people. But I love this because Hebrews says, these were enough to sanctify the flesh for a time, but they had to continually be made. They had to continually be offered to continue to sanctify. And even in that sanctification, it only sanctified the flesh because it couldn't sanctify the conscience And Christ actually came to die, not just to sanctify our flesh, but he came to sanctify us so that we could feel no more shame, no more guilt, no more condemnation, no more judgment. We didn't have to live with the mental and emotional ramifications of our sin because we could live in freedom. For freedom, Christ came to set us free. Because Jesus, the perfect spotless lamb of God, shed his blood once and for all, Peter says in verse 318 we could be in relationship with God again for eternity. First John 4, 10 says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I love theological words sometimes. And propitiation is a great one. Like, what are we teaching in schools? Come on. It, it means, propitiation literally means to appease to appease for our sin, to appease what? To appease who? Jesus died to appease God's holy justice and to turn away his wrath. Apart from Christ, we deserve one thing, wrath, death, hell. That's all we deserve apart from Christ. But he took on our sin and he drank the cup of judgment in our place. Praise God. His blood was shed for you and me so that there would be no more sacrifice for sin. There wouldn't have to be any lambs and goats. There wouldn't have to be any bulls. He died once and for all so that he 
we could have a relationship with God the Father. But that's not all. There's something really cool that happened when the spotless lamb of God, Jesus, died. And we actually read about it in Matthew. I love it. <clears throat> a physical thing that happened that reminds us today why we get to sing songs like Lean Back in the Loving Arms of a Father. On the day Jesus was nailed to the cross for our sin, Matthew says, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. From top to bottom. Most historians believe that that veil that separated the Holy of Holies from everything else was literally 60 feet high. 30 feet wide and four inches thick. And when Jesus said it is finished and gave up his spirit, it was torn from top to bottom and all of heaven said, come on in. So all of heaven says to you, come on in and lean back on the father because he's not the God in unapproachable light. He's the God in light who says, walk in the light, be with me. He gave us the right to come in as adopted children. We now don't have to stand before the holy God in fear because we receive not a spirit of fear, but a spirit of adoption because we are his children and we can say, Abba, Father. It is by the blood of the perfect son of God that we sing, I will lean back in the loving arms of a beautiful father. And it is by the blood of Christ that we can sing that with confidence because the holy God is our loving father. We can enter in to the holy of holies because Christ died for us, we can enter in. We don't have to just be in the courtyard anymore. We don't have to just come into that space and dwell in the courtyard where all there is is sacrifice. We can actually enter into his presence. And listen, because we can enter in, I would love to just stop right there and go, hey, enter in, you can. You can actually enter in, so do it. And I'd love to just go, cool. Go enter in. But I've learned something in my 25 years of following the Lord. We humans don't like things easy. And so when somebody tells us that we can just have something for free, we always think that there's a hitch. And we always think, well, no, I gotta do something for this, right? Like I gotta, this can't be this easy, right? And so I just wanna tell you just a little, little story of mine from 2004. And, uh, and I'm gonna say, listen, I don't, I don't, usually when I preach like this, I am gonna make one little caveat. Um, I, don't, I don't apologize for things that God's shown me. I don't try to even explain them. So when I say something about a vision or God speaking to me or what, if you don't understand it, I promise you God speaks. That's all I can say. I promise you that God speaks. I promise that God shows things. Um, and so it, it just is what it is. Take it for what it is, okay? But this is what I will say. Don't get hung up on the supernatural because supernatural is not the point. The supernatural points to the one who died for you. Um, so he's showing you something to point you to Jesus, okay? 
But like I said, I preached my first sermon six months after I became a believer, a year and a half. I'm gonna kind of speed through this part just to get to the part that uh, God like wrecked me. Um, a year and a half later, I took my first youth ministry in Indiana. I did that for four years. Um, things blew up, man. I went to the 700 person town uh, up in Indiana. It was a nothing little town, like Paris crossing Indiana. If you've heard of that, then wow, that, that would shock me. Let's talk afterwards, because you probably know some people I know. But, uh, but Paris crossing Indiana, okay? It's literally right beside Paris, Indiana. There's a Paris in Indiana. Yep, um, but it's it's nothing too. And uh, and I went there in 700 person town. They had more churches than people. And uh, I started there with uh, four teenagers. And within the first year, it grew to like 25 teenagers. And I was like, dude, 25 teenagers in a 700 person town with like 5,000 churches? Not really. That was an exaggeration, but you know it was a lot. Um, but I'm like, dude, we're killing it. Like, man, this following Jesus thing's awesome. Because like I was a total pagan before I became a Christian at 23. He radically saved me out of drugs and all kinds of craziness. I was a total heathen. So like, I didn't know anything about church. So when I felt called to ministry, I didn't even know what that meant. I just knew I was gonna go tell people about Jesus, okay? So I started doing youth ministry, it blew up. And I'm just like, man, this love and Jesus thing is awesome. So then the Lord called me back to Florida to be a worship leader at Round Lake Christian Church in Mount Dora. So I came back and I started leading worship and I was also helping in the youth ministry. And then I started doing college ministry and everything I did just was awesome. It was like, oh my gosh, the youth ministry's blown up, the college ministry's blown up. Oh my gosh, this is amazing. Every time I lead worship, it's like, man, everybody's just crying and whatever. And I was just like, this is the best. Like, I can't believe it. I love it. And, uh, and I just thought, man, this following Jesus thing is, I, I love this. And I just, oh man. So I was just giving myself to Jesus. And then in 2004, right in the middle of everything, great. I'm sitting in my living room. I'm by myself, Leslie and Grace, that's my wife and daughter. They're up in Indiana and uh, visiting family. And I'm sitting in my living room and I have a vision in my living room by myself. And this vision is, all I see is myself walking around with other people who I went to church with, elders in the church, other pastors, friends of mine. Uh, I'm walking around and there's this door and this door has light like pouring out from all the edges. But we're walking around in the dark and I'm literally going to the elders and I'm going to, I see all this play out in front of me. I'm going to the elders, I'm going to my friends, I'm going to the pastors and I'm going, hey, what's this door over here? Like, what's that door? And they're all going, I don't know, what are you talking about? I don't see a door, what are you talking about? Literally, and I'm like, there's a door right there. And they're going, no, I don't see a door. And so we're just walking around in the dark and then the vision stops. I draw in my journal a door, I draw a light coming out from all around it and I go, God, I believe you're on the other side of this door. Please tell me how to get in there. So I was really perplexed because here I am, like ministry's blowing up, I'm doing all this stuff. And I'm like, well, this is kind of weird because that vision was kind of like I was in the dark and like there was a place where God was that I wasn't at, but like, I know God. So like, and I mean, I was in that vision with a bunch of pastors and elders. So like, we all know God. So like, that's weird. Like where would be the place where like God is at, but like, I'm not. So I prayed for that, about that for three years, three years. This is not a sermon on the persistence in prayer. Three years, okay, and I was just like, God, like, what is this door? Help a brother out, you know, like, come on. And uh, I'm like, tell me what this is. <laughs> In 2007, God said to me, Jason, read 1 Samuel chapter three and nothing else until I release you. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, that's pretty specific. So I start reading 1 Samuel chapter three. I only read 1 Samuel chapter three. It ends up being three months 
I only read 1 Samuel chapter three. That's it for three months. And then as I'm reading 1 Samuel chapter three, I start reading things like this. Now the boy Samuel, and a matter of fact, can we put that tabernacle picture back up there? That'd be great. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Huh, that's interesting. So, so like, we're just gonna use the tabernacle. Think of it like the temple as well. They were the same. So Samuel is like, we know he couldn't be in the Holy of Holies. And the way it's described, it's like he's sleeping right outside the veil. Like, He's sleeping, it's like he's sleeping right there. Like Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. So he was like right there, man, where the lamp and everything was going. But then you get to verse seven and it says, now Samuel did not yet know the Lord and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. But it started with, the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And I was like, man, that's super interesting. I don't know what that means. <laughs> and, so, and so I've got this, I've got this door. And now three years later, 2007, I got Samuel sleeping outside. And I got Samuel doesn't know the Lord for the word of the Lord had yet not been revealed, but he's ministering to the Lord. And he's sleeping like right outside the door, man, like right there, but he doesn't know. And then in 2008, all of a sudden I read Revelation 3.20. Now, it says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And I think, man, it like hits me. But I immediately think, no, 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 that he can't be talking about that because like, I know because our church always preached this verse as an evangelistic verse. Like, yeah, yeah, this is about evangelism. Like, this is just like God standing at, Jesus is standing at the door of your heart. He's just knocking and if you'll just open, he'll come in and commune with you. And like, but then I'm like, but hold on. This isn't a letter to a church. This isn't to the unbelieving world. This isn't about the unbelieving world. God's saying this to the church. And it was like, God just hit me all at once. And he said, Jason, you've been doing a lot of ministering for me. You've been doing a lot, a lot of ministering for me. And I, I've been blessing your ministry. But you've just been like, I created a way for you to enter in and you've just been like ministering and sleeping right outside where you could be coming in, but instead you're just sleeping like right outside. And I'm just telling you, I'm knocking, man. If you'll come in, if you'll open the door, I'll commune with you. And that's when Jesus, clear as day, said to me, Jason, you love telling people about me more than you love me. And you don't ever wanna hear that. I'm just telling you, you don't ever want to hear that. Because I got to be honest, Matthew 7 was always scary to me. 
but it became real to me that day. Like Jesus says in Matthew 7, on the day he returns, there'll be some of you that say, didn't I prophesy? Didn't I cast out demons? And I'll say, I never knew you. Jesus will say, I never knew you. And I'm just telling you guys right now, when he returns, are you gonna say, hey, didn't I go to young adults? Didn't I go to the holier than thou house church? Didn't I like serving the community? Didn't I go to mission serve? Didn't I go to the park and play volleyball all the time? I know y'all just had a sports day. I saw the Instagram post. But like, Jesus, like if, if we're gonna sit there and go, but didn't I, didn't I, didn't I, Jesus could go, I, I never knew you. I never knew you because you were doing a lot of ministering. You were doing a lot of doing, but you didn't know me. And so then I was serious about, I got it, Lord, no, I got to get in. How do I get in? And that's when I had the second vision and we're in, we're in right after this. I went to, back to Round Lake Christian Church. We hadn't been there in a while. They had a new associate pastor. And uh, I went back to Round Lake Christian Church and I'll just kind of play the scene out. I sat on the right side of the church, like way over on the right-hand side of the church and everybody else is over there and I'm sitting up and like, and Jason Savage came and sat down beside me. He was the associate pastor. I did not know him. And, uh, but he's got a cool stinking name because who doesn't want the last name Savage? That's savage. But, uh, but he came and sat down beside me and like the service hasn't even started, okay? Like I'm just sitting in my seat. We're all just being normal people, okay? And then God spoke to me. And I'll just tell you, when God speaks to you, normally you all of a sudden, you're not a normal person anymore. Okay, so, so, so God says, get on your knees. And I'm like, hmm, nah. I'm like, because I don't even know this brother. And like, we're not even doing anything, Lord. Like, this will be really weird. And I get really self-conscious. And God's like, get on your knees. And I was like, still so like, oh, I don't wanna do this. Please, Lord, no, 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 you can't be telling me to do this. And then God like yelled in my head. I didn't hear it audibly. I just, he yelled, like, get on your knees now. And that's another thing you never wanna hear. Don't make God yell at you. But I slipped down on my knees and I'm sitting there and I'm so self-aware and I'm so embarrassed. And I'm like, what does this dude even think? And like, whatever. And I'm literally not, I'm looking to see if he's looking at me. That's how vain I am, okay? I'm looking to see if he's looking at me. And when I look over, I see all the people, but they're not sitting in chairs anymore. They're all laying flat on their face. And I see a vision of all the people laying prostrate before God, they're laying on their face. And I looked down because it freaked me out. I wasn't ready for it. And I look back and the same. And I look back again and it's the same. And then God says, tell Jason what you see. And I'm like, ah, really? Because like this dude doesn't even know me and that's weird. And, uh, and God was gentle and said, tell Jason what you see. And I slipped up and I slid over to him because I was like three seats away. So that was even weird by itself to slide over towards another dude up in church. But, uh, but I'm like, I slide over and I'm like lean over to him and I'm like, hey bro, um, I know we don't know each other. And like, I just, I feel like God wants me to tell you that like when I look over there, I see everybody laying prostrate before God. And like, I just, I just, 
God wanted me to tell you that. And I slid back over to my seat. And Dan Douglas gets up to read the scripture like our scripture was just read here. He's reading from 1 Chronicles 29. They're collecting things to build the temple. And the last verse Dan Douglas reads is, and all of the people of God laid prostrate before him. And Jason leans over to me and goes, you wanna go to lunch? And I was like, I was like, yeah, let's go to lunch. But right then God said, humble yourself and surrender and you can get in. Just humble yourself and you get in the door. It's just wide open. Just humble yourself and want me. God has made a way for us to enter into the Holy of Holies and sit at his feet. And we still choose to act like we have to work our way in that door. Or worse, that working is entering in that door. Jesus came and fulfilled the law and put an end to the sacrificial system so we don't have to sacrifice ourselves to get in. I can get in if I just go to enough things, I can sit at his feet. That's our attitude. If I just go to enough things, if I just do enough stuff, Jesus loves me and I can have communion with him. And he's like, no, come have communion with me because I love you and I'll send you out. There's a, this is the last verse. Enter by the narrow gate, Jesus says. Can we put up that picture of the tabernacle one more time? Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. He says in Luke, strive to enter the narrow gate. I love this because Jesus, God told Moses exactly how to build this. And then Jesus shows up on the scene and they were temple people, tabernacle people. And there's this fun thing that if Jesus is standing in the temple or if he's talking about temple things, tabernacle things, and he says, hey, strive to enter the narrow gate because it leads to life. The way to destruction is broad, it's wide. There's this cool little fun fact. This goes back out into the world from this scene. It's 20 cubits wide. And that veil right there that goes into God is 10 cubits wide. So when Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate, because it leads to life, the way to destruction, it's wide. Everybody finds it. Yeah, actually it's 20 cubits wide. And the door that enters into God is 10 cubits. It's narrow and few find it. Strive to enter through the narrow gate. Strive. We're gonna have a song of response. And uh, I just want y'all to take just a couple minutes um, and just think, have you been trying to work your way to God? Like, is this your identity in him coming to gatherings like this or maybe serving on Sunday mornings in kids ministry or serving at the coffee bar? We can do a million things and it's not actually knowing Jesus, but Jesus wants to know you. 
And the Father, the Father has made a way into him. And you can actually lean back in the loving arms of a beautiful father. And that's not weird because the holy God is your father and he loves you dearly. So just take a few minutes and just think about your life. And if you find that you've been sacrificing or trying to give so that you can be known, confess that and just tell God, I just want you. I just want you. I want to enter in, Lord. I want in that door. Thank you for making a way. And then we'll sing together. Thanks again for spending some time with us on the Mosaic Young Adults podcast. Our hope for you is that Jesus will use this message you just received and direct your heart completely towards Him. If you want to hear more messages like this one, please feel free to check out our past episodes and subscribe so you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes.